Well, good morning to you all, and uh, Merry Christmas. This is, uh, I think, thankfully, the last Sunday of 2020. <laughs> At the end of the year, it's a, it's a good and natural time to, uh, to reflect and a good time to, uh, to look forward to. Um, the new year is full of a lot of promise and potential. And frankly, 2020 has been rough for everybody. Lots of people that I know, that you know, have lost jobs, have lost homes, have lost loved ones. I know people who've had some severe diagnoses this year. Um, we've had a contentious election cycle. We've had record hurricanes. I mean, the list is, is pretty long this year, um, not the least of which is a, a pandemic that's killed hundreds of thousands of people. So I think for all of us, it's safe to say that 2020 has had some difficulties, and for some, it's been extremely, extremely hard. And so naturally, we look to next year. We look to uh, a year that's so far unwritten, that uh, has the potential to right some wrongs, and we can start new, we can start fresh, that no matter how bad this year has been, next year could be better, and because we're not there yet, it, it will be better. We have that, that hope. We'd like to just forget about 2020 and uh, move forward. And it would be understandable if a, uh, a certain prophet had that kind of outlook, too. Um, of all the prophets, I think Hosea has the most deserving right to uh, want to just move past the phase of life that he's in at one point and to forget about it and move forward. We're going to look at the book of Hosea for the next two weeks. Um, because there's 14 chapters, even though they're short, we're not going to be able to do the kind of very fine verse-by-verse verse that we typically do. We're going to do a little bit more of a, an overview. We can't cover everything, and that's okay. Um, as much as it pains me not to focus on every little tiny detail. But the big picture is important too. And the, uh, the big picture in Scripture is, is God, of course. It's his holiness and how he deserves our undying praise and how he sacrificed himself to be in relationship with us. So we're going to look at that big picture for the next couple of weeks. Uh, this week, today, we're going to look at Hosea 1 through 3 the first three chapters. I would encourage you over the next couple of weeks to sit down and read the whole book. It's not long. It'll take you 20 or 30 minutes to read the whole thing because there's no substitute for your own deep reading and study of it. So I would encourage you to spend some time in it this week. It's not a lot to ask. Um, I would encourage you to do that. Today, we're just going to look at the first three chapters. And anytime that we approach a book kind of for the first time um, in a sequence, in a series, it's good to ask some questions about it. It's good to ask, you know, what is, what is Hosea about? And, you know, if you've done Pastor Matt's exercise with Genesis chapter 1, you know that it's about God, right? But topically, what, what is it about? And Hosea is about several things. It's about how we have walked away from God. And by we, I mean God's people. It's about how easily wrapped up in pride we are in the things that we can accomplish, the things that we can do and build with our own hands. It's about how God disciplines his people and how he calls us to repentance in spite of the things that we do. It's about how his love for us is persistent and enduring in spite of us. And it's about how our sin does not outweigh his love for us. And as you go through Hosea on your own this week, especially in the middle chapters, you're going to notice that it feels pretty negative. It's a tough one to get through. It kind of seems like God is just rebuking and rebuking and rebuking and laying out this long list of things that his people have done. And that's exactly what he's doing. That's not, that's not false. But like a loving father chastising his son, there's a reason for it. And there's also hope in the end. The book of Hosea is about a man and his wife, these first three chapters here. As we start off the book, we see that, that 
Hosea is the son of Beeri, a, a prophet in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah of Judah, and of Jeroboam of Israel. Hosea is uh, uh, ministering to the, uh, the northern part of the kingdom. This is the point where it split Israel in the north, later called Ephraim uh, in Hosea. And he's in roughly 750 to 720 BC, give or take. Hosea is contemporaneous with uh, Amos and Micah, and right before Isaiah. In fact, there's, there's probably some overlap with Isaiah as well. So it's about that specific man in a specific time and in a specific place. And in the end, it is, as every book is, about the relationship that God wants to have with his people. What's different about Hosea is how that's shown. And if you're familiar with the book at all, you know that it's not a pretty picture when we get going. But God's relationship to his people, it takes many forms. We have a lot of words we use to refer to how God relates to us. We can't talk about all of them right now. That would be a good series for another time. But we can talk about a few. We can talk about how he's creator and how he is uh, father and king and shepherd and husband. A good place to see a lot of those relationships is in the confession of the people in Nehemiah chapter 9. Go read that at some point. Just that chapter where the people come before the Lord in, in confession and repentance and talk about the different ways that they've kind of violated all those different sorts of relationships that they're supposed to have with God. Well, God is all those things. He's, he's king and shepherd and father and husband and creator, but not, not independently of each other. He's not, God is not modal and sometimes each of those things. You know, it would, be a, it would be a real pity to think that God is so meager that he could only embody one characteristic at a time. There's a verse in 1 John chapter 4 that gets me used a lot like that. You know, the one where it says that God is love. Well, if you believe that God is only love, and if your perception of love is that it's about pleasing someone else, then logically your perception of God is that his goal is to please you. And it's going to be a very badly limited view of God. And it's going to lead you away from the truth. Whereas if you look at the whole context of that verse, and of course all of scripture, you're going to see that God is so much more complex than one word could ever explain. And so yes, God is love, but he is more than just a lover, and he is so much more than just one aspect. So when we talk about the attributes of God, we don't mean that he's limited to one of those or to one at a time, but that he's multitudes. He's all. He's, and so rather than try to ascribe to God our own limited ability to figure out how something can be more than one thing at a time, we should strive to understand who God is based on what he says and love him for it. Because each one of these aspects of his character emphasizes certain parts of our relationship with him. As creator, he is the maker. He is all-powerful over what we are. We see that laid bare in Genesis and in, in John 1. As father, he encourages us and rebukes us. He has authority over who we are. We're supposed to be under his guidance. Deuteronomy chapter 14 is a good place to look at this. It says, You are the children of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves nor shave the front of your head for the dead. That's a separate sermon. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He chose us to be his children. And as king, God rules over us. He has authority over what we do. And so we're supposed to be in submission to him. And you can go to Isaiah 6 and you can see that beautiful picture of God on the throne being worshipped and honored. And God is referred to as king throughout scripture. He's also our shepherd. And in, in that way, he guides and he protects us. That, that part of the relationship is about trust and it's about love. And Psalm 23 is one of the most comforting things you could ever read 
Um, I'm sure you're familiar with it. If not, go read it after church today. Psalm 23. It says, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God, as the shepherd, takes care of us. And he uses that rod both to keep us safe and also to bop us on the head occasionally. As husband, you can look at Isaiah 54, among other places, to see that part of the relationship. That part of the relationship with God is about faithfulness. We sang a bunch of songs about that this morning, which was awesome. Great is his faithfulness. It's about intimacy, and it's about priority, being one together. It's about commitment, and it's about knowing each other well. So just as there are many aspects of our relationship with God, there are also many ways that we can break that relationship. We can break the relationship between ourselves and God as creator by denying creation and denying what we are. And we can break our relationship with him as father by ignoring his rebuke and his gifts. And we can break our relationship with him as king by finding other kings or idols to worship instead. And we can break our relationship with him as shepherd by wandering away from the safe pasture that he provides for us. And we can break our relationship with God the husband by sleeping around in spiritual adultery. And that is what's happening in Israel when Hosea is teaching and prophesying. There is spiritual adultery afoot in the nation of Israel. So Hosea as a book, the marriage relationship between God and his chosen people, that's the way that this particular book looks at the relationship between God and his people. It's the primary aspect of his relationship with us that Hosea focuses on. And as we think about a marriage relationship, there is one thing that makes that, that kind of relationship work, that can make it successful. It's not common hobbies or, or, or similar interests. It's not financial security or coming from good family backgrounds or something. It's not even physical attraction. What's the one thing that makes a marriage work? It's faithfulness, right? Both to each other, but also to the idea of what marriage is. And if that's not seriously considered, there's not going to be any respect for it. Nothing's going to break a marriage faster than a lack of faithfulness. Because without that, none of the other characteristics of a marriage matter. It doesn't matter if you're attracted to each other or if you have good money and jobs and cars and kids or whatever. It won't matter. There won't be God-glorifying love in that relationship without faithfulness. Now, that's not to say that a marriage can't survive unfaithfulness if it's repented and brought back together, if that relationship is healed. And I've seen that happen in people, and it's an amazing thing. But in a general sense, in order to have success, for whatever that word means, in a marriage, in spite of anything else, there has to be faithfulness. Upon that, you can build a successful, God-glorifying marriage. And so in order for the relationship between God and his people, in a sense of marriage, to be successful, there has to be faithfulness. Fortunately, one party in that relationship is always faithful. We see God's faithfulness throughout Scripture, throughout history. We see it in our own lives. Deuteronomy, I'm going to give you three examples out of many that you can go to. Deuteronomy chapter 7. It says, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. It's not because you were attractive, Israel. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, 
the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. He keeps his word. Psalm 119 is a long one and well worth the read. Verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You established the earth and it abides. His faithfulness endures to all generations. It's not temporary. Lamentations chapter 3, not a book that gets turned to all that much. Verse 22 says, Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. Great is thy faithfulness. There are a hundred other verses, like probably more actually, undercounting. But the point is that God is faithful always. So in, in, the, in, the, in the concept of the marriage relationship between God and his people, God is always faithful. So if the marriage is broken, well, we know who's at fault. God's not the problem. And Hosea is not the first prophet to explain this. I mean, this is a foundational message of just about every prophet that you can read in here is that God's people have walked away from him and he wants them back. But Hosea is used differently. So now we can actually look at Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. God spoke to Hosea and through Hosea. He gives him a command, which is not unusual. A lot of the prophets get some kind of instruction from God to do something specific, whether it's go to Nineveh or whatever. But the command that God gives to Hosea is a little bit different from most of the other prophets because he doesn't just tell them, go to a specific place and give them a particular message. And he doesn't just tell them, hey, write this down. And he doesn't just tell them, uh, you know, why don't you go talk to the king and give him this message. God says, go get married, which is a little odd, but not altogether strange. But it's not the act of marriage, right? It's, it's not the what, but it's the who here. You see, God has prepared for Hosea a special spouse, the right spouse for him. You know, as I think about the last 15 years of my life and how much I've been blessed by the spouse that God made just for me and how much better my life is because of it, immeasurably, I would think, man, it must be fantastic for anybody to get to marry the person that God has appointed for them. But not so much for Hosea, is it? God commands Hosea to take a wife of harlotry. That's one of those words that gets harder to say the more times you say it, so bear with me. You're going to see it a lot in Hosea. Other translations, I'm in the New King James, other translations will say uh, whoredom or adultery or promiscuity or prostitution. So the, the meaning is pretty clear there, I think. It's about unfaithfulness. And not just unfaithfulness, but, but pointed, intentional, flaunting unfaithfulness. This is who God has appointed for Hosea. <clears throat> now, it may be that, that Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, is beautiful. It might be that she is extremely smart and patient. It may be that 
She is really skilled in the arts or, or cooking or home repair or, or flock management. It might be that she's outwardly calm and kind and witty and charming. She might be everything that a, a single guy in B.C. Israel could ask for. But there's one thing that she's not. She's not faithful. And that's the one attribute that can make or break a marriage. I think Hosea should be required reading during marriage counseling, actually. <laughs> See, a marriage can flourish when one or both people are not conventionally attractive or when one or both people are not particularly good at remembering to do the dishes or book appointments or be patient with each other. Our culture would have us believe that those things are grounds for divorce. They're not, which is an entirely other sermon to have <clears throat> and an important one. Those things aren't grounds for divorce, but if one or more parties is unfaithful, then the marriage is already in a state of brokenness, and, and it either needs to be dissolved or it needs to be repaired. It cannot continue in its brokenness. It won't function that way. And so when God commands Hosea to enter into a doomed marriage, a doomed relationship, it seems kind of mean. I mean, how would you like to go into your, your wedding knowing that your spouse is going to be unfaithful to you? How would you like to be either standing at or walking up to the altar knowing already that there's infidelity sown into the heart of that person who's coming? That's what God asked Hosea to do. That seems really unfair. But God, like a good boss or a good father, didn't ask Hosea to do something he wasn't willing to do himself. That's exactly the kind of marriage relationship that God entered into with his people as God puts it in verse 2, he says, the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. And I think we all know that the land, the, the dirt hasn't done anything wrong. He's talking about the people there, the nation, Israel, his chosen folks. They've turned away from God. They have departed. So God's going to use Hosea's marriage as an example. He's going to experience the heartbreak of an unfaithful spouse. But, there's always a but coming. He's also going to experience the joy of reconciliation that God also has in store for his people. This is the picture God paints through Hosea's experience. He tells him to take a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. And there are three kids mentioned here in the first few verses. It says, Gomer conceives and bore him a son, and God told him to name him Jezreel. And the meaning behind that is another sermon too. <laughs> but the name means God sows. It's a name of promise. There's a lot more behind it. We'll get into another time. Later on, it says that Gomer conceives and, and bore a daughter and then another son. And their names are supposed to be um, Loruhamah, which means no mercy, and Lo Ami, which means not my people. No mercy and not my people. Good names for your kids. <laughs> and you look at the text and it, it's not even clear these are Hosea's kids. With Jezreel, it says that Gomer conceived and bore him a son. With the last two, it just says that Gomer conceived and bore children. So it's not even clear these are Hosea's kids that he's parenting now and calling these strange names. And so we get this kind of confusing inside-out picture of what a marriage is supposed to be like. He, they're married. Gomer's actively cheating on him, having kids by other men. This is not what marriage is supposed to look like. Harlotry is the antithesis of a good marriage because it's the antithesis of good faithfulness. And so by all accounts, Hosea shouldn't do this. He shouldn't go into this relationship. Adultery is wrong. 
It's one of the Ten Commandments. Seven, I think. Maybe not. Um, It's the only reasonable grounds for divorce. That's what Jesus says. And in Hosea's time, adultery is punishable by death. Leviticus chapter 20 says it's punishable by death. So why do this? Why should Hosea suffer so much? That seems miserable. It's not a pleasant answer, but the answer is that he's an example. But just like a lot of prophecy has kind of a near-term example and a long-term example, same here with Hosea's life. He's a near-term example to the people around him, God's people. They're going to see God work through Hosea's life. But he's also a long-term example for us to see so that we won't make the same mistakes that the people of Israel did. Their mistake was serious. Chapter 2, verse 2 of Hosea is God telling him to bring charges against your mother, that is, against the nation Israel. It's telling Hosea to bring charges against the nation. This is not the woman I married, God says. In verse 3, he says, she needs to stop or I am going to expose her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. Pleasant. Verses 4 and 5. I will not have mercy on her children. No mercy. For they are the children of harlotry. For their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. It's a picture both of the nation and of Hosea's wife. But God says in verses 7 through 9, he says, She will chase her lovers, but she will not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better for me than now. Things are going to be hard for God's people when they seek after idols and false gods. Verse 8, For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine, and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. I gave her that, God says. She, Israel, Gomer, thought it came from her adulterous relationship with other gods. It's not hers, though. She's not going to keep it. Verse 9, God says, Therefore I will return and take away my grain in its time, and my new wine in its season, and I will take back my wool and my linen, given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall deliver her from my hand. She's going to be exposed, this cheating spouse, this unrepentant and spiritually idolatrous nation. She's going to be exposed. And everyone will see very plainly how they have walked away from God. And the shame is going to be severe and difficult. And God explains why it's so severe and difficult as he gets to the root of the problem in verse 13 of chapter 2. God says, I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, says the Lord. And there's the rub. Me, she forgot. Israel forgot God. You ever forgotten something? Forgot your keys. Forgot where you put the remote. Forgot what time it was. I forget words, like really common words, like potato. The other day, <laughs> I forgot the word. In the last week, I wrote down the words that I forgot. There's probably more because I forgot them too. <laughs> potato and check and glasses and diaper and sausage. All of those in the span of a couple of days. And like I said, probably more. Ask Anna sometime about this. Just not there, gone. 
We forget names, right, of people we've just met or people we've known a long time. We forget the dates of historical events that we learned in history class in high school. We forget what we go to the grocery store for. That's one kind of forgetting. That's the accidental, innocent, slip of the brain kind of forgetting. But there's another kind of forgetting, isn't there? There's, there's a kind of forgetting that's intentional, that's purposeful. There, there's, there's ignorance and then there's willing and willful ignorance. These are things like bad childhood memories or something particularly frightening or violent that happened. And you try to put it out of your own mind for your own sanity and comfort. And I understand what that's like. And the phrase, forgive and forget, we, we don't mean that we expect somebody who's forgiven us to like accidentally forget what happened. We're asking them to put it out of their mind, to intentionally forget that. This is, this is what we expect and are thankful to God for, for what he does to us because of the blood sacrifice of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, God is speaking. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. God's not going to accidentally forget what we did to him. He's going to put our sins out of his mind. He will blot them out, is the way it's put elsewhere. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. God doesn't have brain fog. That is grace to forget all of our sins. But the problem with that kind of forgetfulness is it can also be weaponized. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul's writing about how that's been used, been weaponized, that forgetfulness. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. They knew God made it clear, and they chose to dismiss that knowledge and to know something else. That's what's happening in Hosea chapter 2, verse 13. God says, me, she forgot. Not, I slipped her mind. Maybe she'll come back and remember me. Me, she forgot. She forced me out of her mind, did Israel, did his chosen people. You see it in that whole verse. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot. She, Israel, God's people, us, got herself gussied up, knowing that the earrings and the jewelry were going to attract the attention of somebody who's not her husband. She knows exactly what she's doing. And she is forcing her husband out of her mind in order to do it. I can relate to this. I expect many of you can as well. The idea of forcing God out of our minds in justification of being able to do something we know he probably wouldn't like. <clears throat> That's adultery in this sense. In action, but in the mind and where it starts in the heart. Me, she forgot. 
and it's hard and sad. But this is the turning point. A rough opening to a sermon. This is the turning point. Chapter 2, verse 14. Me, she forgot, but somebody didn't forget what that relationship was supposed to be like. God has not forgotten. Verse 14, God says, I will allure her. He says, I will woo her. I will entice her and bring her back. I will speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards and she shall sing like in the days of her youth. Me, she forgot, but I have not forgotten her, says the Lord. And I will bring her back, he says. And look at the picture of restoration that, that God has in store for his people, even though they are adulterous and forgetful. Verse 16 of chapter 2, It shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. There will be a fullness of that marriage relationship. And guess who's going to be forgotten then? These idols, these false gods, they will be forced out of the mind. Verse 19 says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. Faithfulness is going to be the basis of that betrothal, of that rejuvenated, corrected relationship. Verse 23, Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. No mercy? Now there is. Then I will say to those people who were not my people, you are my people, and they shall say you are my God. Remember the name of Hosea's children? No mercy and not my people? Here we see God saying he's going to win back his bride. It's going to be a complete winning back, and there will be a restoration of that relationship because of his goodness. It will no longer be no mercy and not my people. There will be mercy for God's people. He restores God tells Hosea he's going to restore his people's relationship with him. He's also going to restore Hosea's relationship with his wife. What a blessing. God had told Hosea to enter into it, and and now God's going to deliver him from it. Not to pull him out of the relationship, not to divorce as the world would have him do, not the human way, but he's going to heal it. He's going to restore that relationship. We see in chapter 3, One of the things that's important as you go through a book of prophecy especially is to always make sure you know who's talking. In chapter 1, it's Hosea in the third person saying, the Lord said to Hosea the prophet. In chapter 2, it's God speaking. Chapter 3 here, it's Hosea speaking in the first person. The Lord said to me. This is personal. The Lord said to me. Verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raising cakes of the pagans. We'll talk about raising cakes some other time. God commands Hosea to seek after his cheating, adulterous, unfaithful wife that he'd set Hosea up with in the first place. A wife that has forcefully forgotten him and sought out other lovers. God says, your relationship is broken, but go and love her again. And again, it's not anything that God wouldn't do himself. What he was doing then, and he continues to do today for us. His love for his people is extreme. His faithfulness is complete. 
And so Hosea is faced with a choice here. His marriage, I mean, let's be honest, it's a dumpster fire. That's been the ornament of the year. I don't know if you guys saw all the ads for the burning dumpster with 2020 written on it. That's Hosea's marriage right now. And he would be, it would be understandable to say, well, just forget it. Move on. Get rid of her. Go find somebody who's not going to be so bad to you. And he'd be within his rights to do so. This year has been kind of a dumpster fire. And we would be understandable, I think, if we said, you know what, I just want to forget it and move on. Totally understandable. Just put 2020 out of our minds and move into next year. But what does Hosea do when he's given this choice? Verse 2 and 3 says, So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. And I said to her, You shall stay with me many days. This is a lifetime relationship. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too will I be toward you. Hosea's wife is so far gone, he had to go buy her as a slave. Just as God does for us, slaves to sin. And think about the cost for Hosea. Not just the money here or the barley, <clears throat> but the, the shame, the scorn, the, the public ridicule, the mockery, the contempt, the loss of his status. There's Hosea, the prophet married to the cheating lady. Oh my gosh, she's going back to her again. <clears throat> going back to an unfaithful spouse that everyone knew was adulterous. This is, remember, this is an example of the people around him too, not just for us. Everybody knew what was going on. Think about that cost. That's also what God faces for redeeming us. You realize that? You would save those people? The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, the perfect life, but also the shame and the scorn and the public ridicule and the mockery and the contempt and so on, the world making fun. You believe in a God? And Satan saying, you believe in those people? You, you trust them enough to save them? A lot of parallels there. Hosea promises his wife a time of restraint, of celibacy, and even within the marriage covenant, which is totally okay. 1 Corinthians 7.5 says um, that kind of restraint is okay for a time by mutual consent in order to focus on prayer and fasting. And boy, did they need prayer and fasting, those two, to get back together. And similarly, the people of Israel will have to wait too. But after that is something glorious. Verses 4 and 5 here in chapter 3. Of Hosea, for the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. The children of Israel, those adulterous, spiritually cheating people, are going to come back. They're going to return and seek the Lord. The amazing thing about this as we look at God's faithfulness and Hosea's obedience and faithfulness is that Hosea had never ceased to be Gomer's husband even though she wasn't recognizing the relationship. God never ceased to be Israel's God even though they didn't want to recognize the relationship. And Christ never ceases to be the Savior even if he's not recognized by others. He stands ready to forgive any who call on him in faithfulness because God is so faithful. He's so faithful. God has to command Hosea to go back to his bride, but who commands God to go back? Nobody. God chooses to go back because his love is so great. That's how deep his love is. It's special. It's different. It's complete. 
He desires relationships so much that he sent Jesus to die. And what greater love is there than that? Let me ask you a question. Do you have that kind of love in your heart for people who've wronged you? Do you have that kind of love in your heart for the people who've broken relationships with you? I had to ask myself these questions as I was writing this sermon. Didn't like it. Do you look at that person who has dishonored you or disobeyed you or disgusted you and think, I'm going to do everything in my power to restore our relationship up to and including sacrificing my own life? It's hard to say yes to that sometimes. But friends, that's what Christ did for us, isn't it? He looked at us in our harlotry and our disobedience and our willful ignorance, our putting him out of our minds, and he said, I will win them back. God has done his part, even if we don't recognize it. Hallelujah. And so as we move into next year, I would encourage you, don't choose to forget the past year. Because even in it, God has been faithful. Because he's always faithful. He has never ceased to be our God, whether we've had to worship online or inside or outside or in our afflictions. He's never ceased to be our God in our social distancing, in our job losses, in our uh, political turmoil, turmoil, excuse me, in our loss of loved ones or, or because we have to wear masks. He's still our God. He's never ceased to be God. God the creator and the king and the father and the son and the Holy Spirit and the shepherd and the husband of his people. He is still God. He hasn't forgotten us, not by accident or by choice. And so let us choose not to forget his faithfulness even in a rough year. Let us choose to remember God instead and sing his praises, not because he gives us a new year, but because he gives us a new life. Amen? Let us choose to remember that he is powerful enough and willing enough to restore the relationship that we broke. Let us remember that he is a God who desires mercy and not sacrifice, who delights in mercy. Let's remember that no matter how far away from God we have gone, no matter what a spiritual harlot we have been, God can restore us to a rejuvenated relationship. And all we have to do is say yes to his call in our hearts. 2021 isn't going to save us. Jesus is. But going into that time, if you're unsure about where your heart is at with others around you, I suggest you look closely at Hosea and see God's faithfulness to restore broken relationships in love. And if you're unsure about where your own heart is with God, I encourage you to open a dialogue. Pray. Come and chat after service. I'll be here. Write a note on a prayer card. Do something. Don't let brokenness linger. It doesn't work. Not because of the new year and some resolution, but because Christ gives us new life. I want to close with 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. It's funny, I, was, I read through my sermon every, when I preach a couple of times in the morning, and literally as I read this in my office practicing, I got a text with this exact verse in it. It was amazing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 20. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. 
That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He's restoring relationship, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God, because he loves you. And he always has, and always will, uphold his side of the relationship and faithfulness. And he understands that you've been a harlot (laughs) and that sometimes you still will be. Probably should have said we there, not you. (laughs) But he also loves us more deeply than we can ever imagine. And so if you don't know him yet as your Lord and Savior, I I really want to talk to you afterward. And for those of you who do, then you know the grace that Hosea experienced, the restoration of relationship that you thought was broken for good and is finally fully restored. And if you do, then go and share that likewise with others because the world right now is looking for a way out of 2020. But they don't need a way out into next year. They need a way out into new life. And that would be my encouragement for all of you today as we walk away. Let's not try to get away from 2020. Let's love the Lord instead. Let me pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your faithfulness. It is astonishing in its complexity and its thoroughness. And you have greatly loved us in ways we can barely fathom. I thank you that you have provided a way back from our brokenness and our bad relationship with you, that you have restored us through the blood of of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, there are many people who are hurting, who need hope. And I pray that they would not look to that in a calendar year, Father, but in your Son and in your steadfastness. Help us to show them. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the chance to gather and to hear your word this morning. Amen.